Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi there. This is Jillian on Love, and I'm on a mission to teach people how to revolutionize their romantic relationships by first transforming the relationship they have with themselves. So whether you're in a relationship, single or heartbroken, I've got you covered. I'm Jillian Trecki, and I'm a certified relationship coach and teacher with over 20 years experience helping people transform their relationship with themselves through their bodies, breath, and minds. I have coached and taught thousands of people to become better versions of themselves and change the way they show up for and within their love lives. Today's episode is heartbreak, and more specifically, how to recover from heartbreak, how to deal with it. And you can definitely apply this to any heartbreak that's in your life, any loss that you are experiencing in your life right now. I'm going to speak to it very specifically within the context of a breakup, whether that is a divorce or just a breakup of a, of a, not just, but a breakup with someone that you've been seeing. It doesn't matter if it's a month or if it's been 20 years. But again, you can apply this to any sort of heartbreak. I know heartbreak really well. You know, I've gone through really difficult breakups. The whole reason why I'm actually sitting here today and have this podcast is because of a divorce that I went through almost nine years ago, eight and a half years ago. I also lost my mom to cancer and my stepfather to cancer. So I understand loss and heartbreak. And so it's been such a big part of what motivates me and inspires me to help people is what I went through. And I even developed an entire heartbreak workbook to outline everything that I, the steps that I took to transform my life. So if you know my work and you've been to my Instagram page and maybe you have my heartbreak workbook, then you know that not all, but a large chunk of my content is devoted to heartbreak or heartbreak recovery, breakup recovery. And so today, there might be some themes that you've heard before from me, but I'm going to go a slightly different direction. I just want to be able to provide different information or a different perspective. I think it's really going to help. So here I go. First thing is, when we go through a breakup, there's lots of different stages. It's like the stages of injury. So let's say you're doing some sort of physical exercise and you pull your hamstring. Let's just say that. The initial pain from that hamstring is acute. It's like the acute pain stage of that injury. So let's say you could even have a hamstring tear. So that's when there's a lot of inflammation. That's when the pain is the most intense. That's where you're unable to do things like run or even walk or even climb in, in any capacity because your leg is hurting. And then as time goes by, the pain subsides, 
the acute inflammatory pain subsides, that shock to the system that our bodies experience whenever we go from a functioning hamstring to a non-functioning hamstring. But it's still painful and there's still a lot of rehabilitating that needs to be done. Or, you know, you might find that you can't do yet the things that you used to be able to do. So you're sort of grieving the loss of what it's like to have a fully functioning hamstring. Hope this metaphor is landing for all of you. And then over time, you learn different ways to manage the pain, right? To continue to live even though you have a pulled hamstring until eventually that hamstring recovers and you go back to fully functioning and you might fall, take a few steps back here and there when you get back into doing the things that you used to do that required the work of that hamstring until it's strong again. But you have to take some steps to really make it strong again Otherwise, it moves out of the inflammatory stage, but it's sort of like this nagging or there's like one spot in the hamstring. We have actually three hamstrings, but I won't get into that. (laughs) But there's one nagging spot, maybe right at the attachment by the knee or right by the bottom of your butt where it's just, it's still bothering you. And that could be because maybe you rushed it. Maybe you didn't do the necessary steps. Maybe you... (sighs) maybe you iced it when you should have heated it or heated it when you should have iced it. Okay, I'll stop with this metaphor now, but you get the point. And that's the thing with heartbreak. There's an acute stage. And the acute stage is right when the breakup happens. And usually it really is so case dependent. It depends on how close you were with this person, how much your lives were intertwined, how much emotional dependency you had on this person or financial even dependency you had on this person, how intense your connection was, whether or not there's kids. There's lots of different variables. I certainly don't think, well, one heartbreak is worse than another. It's just, it's heartbreak. And definitely not all of them are created equal, but someone going through a breakup with someone that they've been with for six months can sometimes be more traumatic for someone who's divorcing from their spouse after 20 years. Because it could be that after that 20-year marriage has ended, it's like the last five years, they were basically living in separate bedrooms. And even if they weren't literally, energetically they were, you know, they were just so disconnected. So sometimes, just sometimes, there's been so much almost emotional preparation for the end of that relationship that once it ends, there's almost a relief where six months could be like, it's this really strong, intense, lusty, like carnivorous relationship. And then it ends and it's really devastating. So it really just depends. Not every breakup is created equal in your life or in my life. That's for sure. But what's important to recognize is that when it first happens, certain breakups can be absolutely catastrophic emotionally, psychologically. It can actually be trauma. And there doesn't have to have been abuse in the relationship, although that definitely adds a dimension to it that complicates things once things end. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
It's just sometimes it is emotionally catastrophic. Sometimes it has to do with the connection. Sometimes it has to do with the individual, how they relate to love and themselves in the world. They're just extremely sensitive. That would be me, but I'm going to get into that in a moment. So when you first break up, you're in the real inflammatory phase. It's acute. And one of the things that really helped me, because I was going through a divorce and the death of my mom around the same time, and I was in heavy grief. Now, let me just say that grief, when you go through a breakup, it is a death. Let me backtrack a little bit, because this is really important, because I know a lot of people who will feel shame or embarrassment or think that something's wrong with them because they're so upset over a breakup. It is a death. It is a death of the relationship. It is a death of who you were, right? Because you're no longer this person's significant other. You're now single. So it's a death in many ways of an identity. It is a death of a dream right? We all go into a relationship and we have a dream of what that relationship can actually grow into, what it can become one day, the potential that it has. And so it's the death of that dream. For some people, it's the death of an entire era of their lives. Like if you're with someone, if you're with someone long enough, And even if you wanted that relationship to end, this is where it gets, where it's just complicated. Even if you wanted that relationship to end, even if you were ready for it to end, even if you were ready to move on, if you were in a long enough relationship, you're still grieving the end of that era of your life. That's normal. You're grieving in the air of your life. You're grieving the loss of a dream. You're grieving the person. I mean, I, I forgot to mention that. You're grieving them. This is someone that most likely you were waking up to every morning or most mornings and going to bed with most nights or every night. And then all of a sudden, you're sleeping in your bed and you're alone when there used to be this warm body next to you. That's intense. Even when the relationship was hard, even if there was a lot of struggle, you're grieving that ending, that you're grieving not having that person there. It's loss. And it can be very shocking to our systems. So when I was in heavy grief, I became familiar with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who actually began the hospice movement. She's no longer living, but she's written several books on the topic of grief and grieving. And she actually wrote a book on grief and grieving where she coined the terms, the five stages of grief, which you might be familiar with, but she started it. She created it. And it's very helpful. So the five stages of grief are denial anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But what's really important for you to know is that 
they don't go in sequence. It's not like this perfect sequence. In fact, you can experience, one could experience all five stages of grief within a single day. Or you could get to acceptance and then one week just take a few steps forward, few steps back. And you can feel like, oh, I've finally reached some acceptance. And then all of a sudden you're like in anger again. And it's important to actually go through these stages and to honor all of these stages. But where it gets tricky is if we get stuck in one of the stages other than acceptance. Being stuck in acceptance is what we want. So let me explain, because I think it'll be useful for all of you to understand what each stage actually looks like and give you some examples. So denial. Denial could look like, no, this isn't happening. You know, sometimes let's say um, we're not divorced yet or we're not broken up yet, but you and your partner have been having, or your spouse, your lover, you've been having conversations and there's been maybe the decision to split, but you haven't actually officially split yet. Or let's just say your family member tells you that they've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So they haven't died yet, but you know that they're going to. You're not divorced yet or you're not split yet, but you know that that's what's happening. And so we start to grieve even then. We go into something that's referred to as anticipatory grief. And we can start this five stages of grief, just spontaneously start then. So sometimes we'll go into denial about that. It's like, okay, even though we've talked ad nauseum and they want a divorce, they are definitely leaving, they're moving out. You might be saying, no, I think we can still work it out because denial is very, very sneaky. The thing about denial is that we don't realize when we're in denial. It's only upon reflection or with the help of a coach or a therapist or a friend or a family mentor that you can then start to face your denial. And denial is a really important survival mechanism. So if you, for example, if you have a really close friend or a family member who's going through, you see that they're going through the grief process and they're in denial, don't just try to snap them out of it because that denial might be the thing that's protecting them from having a full-on breakdown. So it's really important to be patient with someone's denial. And if you think that maybe they are stuck in it too long. You maybe encourage them to see a therapist so that the therapist can help them come to reality. Anyway, I digress, but that was a really important point I want to make. So denial sometimes looks like, sometimes in the processing, it's like, oh, we didn't work out because of A. When really A is not the reason why you didn't work out. There were other more important reasons why the two of you didn't work out. But you might not be able to see that yet because to see the deeper reasons why you didn't work out might mean that you have to experience harsher truths about maybe your role in this. So sometimes we'll blame a third party, not even like a person, we'll just blame a circumstance. No question the pandemic had tremendous impact on certain couples and certain couples didn't survive because of 
the pandemic. But many of those couples will say, yeah, we didn't make it because of the pandemic. Well, that might be a little bit true, but what's really true is that there were problems before it and the pandemic just kind of sped things along. I'm just using that as an example. So that's an example of where the mind goes into denial because the mind is trying to make sense of what is happening. It's trying it, the mind, like <laughs> in quotation marks, the mind is trying to make sense of what is happening. Because remember, when it's a big enough loss, it's traumatic. It's traumatic to us psychologically, emotionally, physically, metaphysically, spiritually. So we're trying to make sense of it because that's what the mind does. It's like, there is a mystery here and I need to solve the puzzle. The only thing is that the paradox is that we can only really understand what has happened once we have enough distance from it so that we're able to see it more clearly, right? Or sometimes denial looks like if someone has come to you with a terrible diagnosis, oh, no, you'll be fine. That's not so bad. It's fine. Rather than seeing the reality that like, no, that person is actually not based on their diagnosis that person is not going to be fine. So that's denial. Anger, I think we all know anger. I think some people have a harder time accessing their anger and some people access their anger too much, honestly, because they're angry all the time, rageful. But it is normal to be angry. And so much of our physical symptoms that we will pretty much inevitably experience when we are going through grief. Physical symptoms such as headaches, neck aches, stomach aches, back aches, excessive fatigue, blood sugar problems, hormonal issues, right? Because all that emotion creates what's called psychosomatic symptoms. And psychosomatic has such a bad rap. But the thing is, everyone listening to this right now, you, you have had or you are currently having some sort of psychosomatic symptom because stress really does come out, whether it's stress from trauma, whether it's stress from just other emotions that haven't been dealt with, whatever it is, it's going to come out physically. And anger is really important to honor when you're going through the grieving stage, like you can be pissed at yourself and you can be really angry at them. You could be angry at the universe, God, whatever it is you believe in. I know there's a lot of shame wrapped up in that, but it's important to feel that anger. And it doesn't mean that you start acting out on it or raging on people. That's never an invitation to do that. Sometimes it's enough to just say, holy crap, I am so angry. And I don't even know what to do with all that anger, to which I would say exercise and journal, write down all the rageful thoughts on paper and do that every single day. By the way, it's a game changer. So it is normal to feel angry. It's funny because people who tend to, in their grieving process, 
whatever it is that they're grieving. A lot of people will tend to really favor, it's kind of a weird use of words, but I'm going to go with it. They'll really favor depression. Like that is a more comfortable emotional space for them to be in rather than anger. And sometimes when I'm working with someone going through the grieving process and I feel like they're staying in the depression too long, sometimes I'll try to help them access the anger because at least in anger, there's a little bit of adrenaline or a lot of adrenaline that gets produced and released into the bloodstream. And that helps someone with guidance to use that sort of energy the energy of the adrenaline to then go into action, maybe to go out on a date, right? Rather than to stay at home and mope. Maybe it's to start that project that person has been putting off for years while they were in the relationship. Maybe it's to go help someone. Maybe it's just to get out of bed and go have a little bit of a day. So anger has its place. And then the next one is bargaining. Again, these are not, this is the order, but it's not a clean sequence. So please don't expect that. Bargaining is really common in relationships between two people who are about to split up. And usually it's, so it's the person who is going to be the dumpy talking to the dumper (laughs) and basically trying to bargain with them to stay in the relationship. So that could look like either begging, like really pleading with the person to reconsider. You know, sometimes that's like, are you kidding? We have such a good thing going on. How can you walk away? We haven't done the work necessary to break up yet. Please don't leave me. I love you. I need you. That kind of bargaining. And sometimes that bargaining looks like it's more it's more subtle. Sometimes we'll strategize different ways to try to get the person to love us again. And that is like an unconscious way of bargaining with the person. If I show them that I've changed, that they won't leave me. Or if I show them that they don't want to lose me, like I'm going to show them that I'm the best thing that's ever happened to them and they're a fool to let me go. That one I hear a lot a lot. And friends will egg other friends on like, you're the best thing that's ever happened to them. You got to show them or show her like, what's up? So that's also bargaining. There's also bargaining with whatever is within your spiritual beliefs. So some people will bargain with God or their understanding of God and say, please, I will be a good person. I will atone. I will do everything. I just need this to happen. So that's big bargaining that I think that people based on their spiritual religious beliefs do, or I've seen atheists all of a sudden bargaining with God if they have been brought to their knees hard and strong enough and feel so, so desperate based on the circumstances of their lives. And then depression. And this is a situational depression And it is very common and normal to experience some depression when you are grieving. It is part of the process. I don't want you to be afraid of it. It is another thing when, like I said, the hamstring, it is like totally inflamed And it just, the inflammation won't go down. 
and won't get to a more manageable place. It's the same thing. It's like in the beginning of a breakup, you might go through a phase where brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, and showering might be a huge feat. (laughs) But you don't want to stay in that stage for too long. It's very detrimental. And I'll get to, you know, how long and whatnot. I'll get to that in a moment. It really depends on the person, but I'll get to that in a moment. You have to experience that. It's deep loss. And for you to feel hopeless and scared and to feel like you have nothing to look forward to, because that's really a big part of depression is looking to your future and not seeing anything, not having anything to look forward to or believing that your current state is permanent. So it's two things. It's not having anything to look forward to and believing that your current state, meaning this acute sadness and shock, to your system that you feel as a result of this heartbreak, you believe it's permanent. Even though you might know intellectually that it's not because you've been through it before or you just know, like, you understand that nothing lasts forever, there's still a part of you, and it might be a really big part of you, that believes that you're stuck in this pain. And by the way, I'm here to tell you that if you are listening to this right now and you are in the acute stages, you are not stuck there. But it does mean you got to do a little work so that you don't stay there longer than you need to, which I'll get to. And then finally, it's acceptance. And I think that acceptance has a lot of stages to it. One being just like, okay, accepting like this person isn't coming back, for example, or this is over. You're no longer bargaining. You're no longer in denial. You might be really angry. You might be really depressed, but you are not in denial. I know this is happening. I see it very clearly. I know that there is no other route this is going to take, and I accept it, or I accept the fact that this is happening. I understand that this is happening. And then there's a deeper level of acceptance, which is, oh, I accept that this had to happen. This comes later. Or I accept that this is part of life. I accept that this is something that I am going to have to work with to overcome. If you're dealing with the death of a loved one, It might be like, okay, I accept that this is a part of life, and I accept the fact that this is something that I am going to have to learn how to live with for the rest of my life. And then even another layer of acceptance is I accept myself. (laughs) This is especially in the case of a breakup. I accept myself even though... I recognize that I messed up a little bit. (laughs) Or I accept myself even though I have felt very rejected by this person 
I still accept myself or I am returning to accepting myself. So those are um, the five stages of grief. And within that, like I said, you know, you have to remember that when this first happens, it's a shock to the system. We as human beings are incredibly adaptive. It's actually one of the reasons why we are at the top of the food chain is because we are so adaptive. And so you will adapt, but you also have to really accept the fact that your system going through a shock is very normal. And I don't want it to frighten you. And I don't want you to question yourself or your resilience. I don't want you to question that because your system is going through intense shock. And you might experience a lot of psychosomatic symptoms because of that shock. And that's when you have to be really easy with yourself and just say to yourself, okay, I'm experiencing this because of what I'm going through. And that is okay. That is very, very normal. Because the worst thing that we can do is then start judging our experience of something that really is incredibly normal and not talked about enough. So it's not once you go through the acute stage, then you can start to process. I think the processing starts automatically, but the processing of a breakup becomes more productive when you're not totally consumed by the initial shock. So once you get over the initial shock, again, you still could be depressed, you could be angry, you could be going through all those stages, but once you're through the initial shock and the denial, then you can really start to process. And it depends how how intense of a relationship and breakup this was. You may need to go to therapy. I mean, I remember my divorce, I was going to therapy two times a week, which if you know me, that's actually like my worst nightmare. Like I do not want to be in therapy twice a week. Some people love it. That's just not my thing, but I had to. There was just absolutely no way. And I did it for, I would say twice a week for about Oh, God, I don't even remember, maybe about three months, and then it reduced to once a week for about a year. It's not like I was just hunky-dory after a year at all, but then I was able to, I felt like I was good. I was building my new career. Other things were starting to happen, and so I didn't need it. Everyone is different, but it's important to process. And if you can't, if therapy is not accessible to you or working with a skilled coach is not accessible to you, or working with a social worker, then you process with, you know, if you belong to a church, with your priest, if you belong to a temple, your rabbi, if you don't have any religious affiliation, then maybe you process with your best friend or a close family member. Or maybe you process, there's a part of processing on your own, you know, maybe you do that through your journaling, through your meditation. Everyone it's just important to process. And what really is the processing? It's feeling your feelings. It's putting a name to your feelings. It's thinking about the relationship a lot. Because what will happen is what people do is that they start by blaming them, then blaming them themselves, right? And then they start to seesaw back and forth between totally blaming the other person and then totally blaming themselves. Feeling like a victim and then making them the villain or vice versa. 
And the aim is to continue to process so that you reach a point where you can see both your part in the breakdown of your relationship and their part. And it can be very confusing. What really was their part? What was my part? And that could take that could take a long time to really know. I know that we all want that magic pill where we wake up and it's like we have all the answers. Trust me, I know. But unfortunately, that's not how life works. You have to go through a process. And some days you're going to have a lot of clarity and other days you're not. And at the end of the day, you want to be able to see your part and their part. And if you have a habit of taking on all the responsibility, then you really need someone to help you see that like they played a significant role too. If you have a habit of never really taking responsibility or always feeling like things are being done to you, then you might have to work with someone to be able to see your responsibility in all this. Thing about us humans is that we will continue to repeat patterns if we don't take the time to process. But that doesn't mean you have to process 24 hours a day all the time. In fact, I actually think that's not a good idea. I want to discourage you from doing that. Because answers come to us oftentimes when we're not constantly searching for the answer. So it's important to actually live your life, to allow some pockets of joy, to increase your capacity for joy, to spend time with friends, to do certain things where you're not constantly thinking about it. I remember at the time, nine years ago, I was teaching yoga and even though it felt like so much to drag my ass to a class to either practice or teach, It's what saved me because in those two instances, I couldn't think about my stuff. I had to focus on my body if I was practicing and not hurting myself. And even more focus was required when I was teaching because it was all about the other, the people who were in the room or the person I was teaching. And having a mental break from thinking about it actually created more space in my psyche, to be able to, when I was having a moment, I don't know, like waking up first thing in the morning or thinking about it, I was able to have more clarity. So obsessively thinking about it all the time is not necessarily going to be the processing. It's like you process with therapist, a coach, or with a mentor, friend, And then you take breaks from it. And if you're really stuck in an obsessive loop, you schedule the breaks. You're like, for this hour, I'm focusing on helping someone else. Not thinking about me and my circumstance for one hour. And then you start to increase that over time. These things really work. So... In the processing, one thing that you really have to ask yourself too that I wanted to add is always have to ask yourself very specifically when it comes to a a breakup of some sort, how willing am I to look at 
my stuff? How willing am I to look at my childhood? How willing am I to look at my behavior that isn't working? How willing am I to look at my past relationships and maybe where I have some patterning that I have to look at? How willing am I to look at my stress levels and my emotions and how that may have played a role? How willing am I to look at my stuff for the sake of growing and changing and transforming so that at the very freaking least, I don't have to experience this kind of pain again. And then at the very most, so that I can really change, evolve, grow, and be a more evolved human or version of myself. Because in the processing, you have to be able to look at your stuff and not just diagnose them. Which, by the way, in the acute stage, that's just what we do. And it's okay. It's okay. We're trying to make sense of it. It's okay to feel like a victim. It's okay. I mean, life is hard sometimes. I mean, how on earth are we not supposed to feel victimized sometimes? You don't want to stay there. You want to process so that you can feel all the feelings that are part of the five stages of grief. You want to feel them, let them go, journal about them put names to them, cry a little bit, maybe yell a little bit. Don't yell at anyone. Maybe it's just like in your bathroom. They're all okay. They're just feelings. They're just emotions. But they get really sticky and harmful when we repress them for too long or when we Don't allow ourselves the privilege of moving through the other phases and feeling other emotions. I did a a reel recently for Instagram and TikTok on why it's so important to stop telling the story of your heartbreak. And I would say 99% of people were just like, thank you so much for giving me that little push in the direction that I really needed to be. I really needed that little smack in the butt or that smack in the face, metaphorically speaking, to kind of wake me up. And I would say about 1%, 2% were like, I have to tell the story. How could I not tell the story? And so I want to clear it up. Of course you have to tell the story. Of course you have to tell the story of your heartbreak. But at some point... You have to stop telling the same story over and over again. So for example, my story was when my now ex-husband and I split, my story for the longest time was my husband broke up with me over the phone on the same day that I had a miscarriage and my mom had a couple months to live. That was my story. 
That wasn't just, it was my breakup story, but it had become, it was so major that it had become my story, full stop. And I told it over and over and over again in my mind. That is what all my friends knew. That's what my therapist knew. That's what, I mean, that was just became my story. And it was important because that's actually what happened. But there came a point where I had to kind of look at it and be like, maybe there's more to this story that I could be sharing with myself or telling to myself or sharing or rehashing. And here's the thing. I was able to stop telling the story by actually taking the steps necessary to create a new story. So I was processing, I was grieving, and it was really ugly for me in the beginning. So I don't want there to be like any misconception that like I just, it was fine. Like it was really, it was really messy. I was shattered. But I was processing and I wasn't processing because I wanted to be a better person, by the way. I was processing because I was so freaking desperate to be out of pain. So I don't care what gets you there, just process. But then as I was getting more into it and learning more stuff, and I was so curious about relationships and I wanted to learn about male psychology because all of a sudden I developed this fear of men. I was like, no, this is not going to work <laughs> because I'm attracted to men. I date men. So if I'm afraid of them, that's going to be a real problem for me. So I really wanted to understand them. So the more that I started to do the work and really to understand, like, how did I end up here? Like, clearly, I have something to do with this. Like, what the hell is going on? And it was processing, it was processing in some capacity for years. I wasn't in the pain for years, but I was definitely reflecting and processing in my own way for years about this. But it came to a point like where I was like, okay, well, I have to stop saying, you know, I have to stop saying <laughs> my husband broke up with me over the phone while I was having a miscarriage and my mom had two months to live. Like I had to actually divorce myself from that story. I had to break up with that story a little bit. And it was just, it, it kind of went slowly. It was like, okay, I can't keep saying this because every time I say it, it actually makes things worse for me. In the beginning, it was important. And I know everyone's thinking, well, how long, how long? Well, you know, I don't know. It was like six months for me but it might be shorter for you. But it was within that year mark, that year, where I was like, okay, there's something else here. Yes, those events happened. Yes, that's true, that happened. But what also happened was that I was also learning so much about myself. I was finally understanding what really happened between the two of us. I was no longer in denial. I was actually maturing. I was actually able to objectively look at it. And so finding a new story for it was something that would developed over years. But now I have a totally different story. It's like, yeah, that happened, but wow, actually this happened. And as a result, 
I took a deep dive into who I am, what I want, what my problems are, and I became obsessed with relationships and what makes a relationship work. And then I went through this whole transformation and now I help others. And isn't it amazing? It's a really great story. I'm just sort of shortening. It's a wonderful story. I could still right now, if someone was like, Jillian, take me back in time to when that all happened and tell me every detail, I could do it. And I would cry. Does that mean I'm still traumatized? No. What it means is there's a lot of power in storytelling. So we can actually take ourselves back in time to a memory and speak about it as if it's happening right now and feel the feelings so strongly that we can actually re-traumatize ourselves in that moment. But why would I want to do that? It's not necessary. But it's important that everyone understands that that's how powerful storytelling is. How we replay events in our minds and to others is if it's like in technicolor. And we want to kind of make them a little bit more black and white, a little bit fuzzier. And it's a process. But the more that you actually look into your stuff and feel your feelings, you will have more clarity and a newer story will start to emerge. But it might mean that you have to be a little disciplined if you've been telling the same story over and over again and you can say, okay, this is not helping anymore. Or you could say, you know what, I actually, this is helping, right? So I'm asking you to become objective. And you say, okay, this is not helping me anymore. I have to stop saying this. Maybe I could just say, you know what, we broke up. I am figuring out what happened. It's been really painful. I'm in the weeds with this. Like you could even say that rather than retelling the events over and over to yourself and to others. That would actually be a really good thing to replace it with. Like, I'm just figuring it out. I'm in pain, but I'm figuring it out. I'm going through it. I'm going through a very human experience right now. It's very, very hard. I don't know which end is up, but this is what I'm going through. I want to make a note about moving on and moving on faster and being highly sensitive. And This is something that I've noticed in girls and women more than I have in boys and men. That does not mean that this doesn't happen to males where they take a little, they take a really long time to get over someone so long that they don't open up themselves to love for a really long time with someone else. But getting stuck in the pain and the grieving process and not being over someone, I would be lying if I said that I don't see this at least five times more in girls anywhere ranging from teenagers to middle-aged women. I'm not going to get into my theories around that right now. I think a lot of it is conditioning. Some of it is hormonal, but a lot of it is conditioning. And 
it's even compounded, regardless of how you identify, it's compounded by the concept of being an empath, quote unquote, or being highly sensitive. Now, there's a book, The Highly Sensitive Person. Anyone who's highly sensitive probably has heard of it. I may have almost everything on the list, not everything, but a lot. So I consider myself a highly sensitive person. I have a very sensitive nervous system, all of that. So historically, it has taken me a really long time to recover from breakups ever since I fell in love for the first time when I was 16 or 15. And actually, I had a a relationship through all the work that I've been doing. I had a relationship post divorce that I actually got over really quickly, which I was happy about. But historically, it was something that it takes a long time. And I've worked with people who've said, I'm just really sensitive. This is just who I am. It takes me a really long time. And I'm very sensitive to that. So I understand that. So please know to anyone who really resonates with that, please know I'm not judging you. But I do have to say, and this is something that I worked hard on myself and something that I feel really strongly about with the women that I work with and even the men that I work with who have struggled with this. It's important to, let's just say, get back in the saddle again. Because I see so many people and I've seen so many women say, why did he move on so quickly and I'm still here? You know, like, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you other than you are staying too long in the grieving. And I know it's hard to get back in the saddle again. I, you know, you might think, oh, that makes me nauseous or I'm scared. Trust me, I get it. I have so much sensitivity towards it and compassion and empathy towards it. You have no idea. But I'll tell a story of a dear friend of mine. She went through a divorce and her husband, there was a betrayal. I won't go into details, but there was a betrayal. And her husband really effed her over in a way, in in not a nice way. Not infidelity, by the way. And of course, it was devastating, upset. They have two children. And I'll never forget you know, after the initial like shock and acute phases and and just all of that, which was, you know, maybe it was like four months, five months. I'll never forget her saying to me, I'm not going to let this close my heart. I'm not going to let this betrayal or him rob my capacity for love. I'm not going to use any excuses so that I can't be happy. My children need to see me happy. I need to be happy. And she pushed herself and she got right back out there and she met someone. And that initial relationship didn't work out, but it was really lovely and exactly what she needed to get her over the hump. And then shortly thereafter, she met really the man who was, who's now like definitely her quote unquote person. That, to me, is a story that I use a lot, and it's an inspiration. And I also have another friend who years ago went through a divorce, and she definitely wanted kids, and she was very, very devastated over that divorce. I mean, definitely, like, having all sorts of psychosomatic rashes and symptoms and whatnot. I mean, it was it was really harsh. But she was like, I got to get back out there. And she, you know, like, I need love. Like, I need love. I need to express love. And I want to have kids. And I'm not wasting time. And I find those two, I think they need to be 
an inspiration for many people. I can't tell you how long, but if you are someone who tends to lick your wounds for years at a time, or you retreat from relationship, or you retreat from the world, or you've been single for a really long time and not putting yourself out there because of how much pain you went through or trauma you went through with an ex. I just really let this be your pep talk. Like you got to get back out there. Don't make the mistake that so many people, myself included, have made in the past of just of closing up or making that breakup or that person define your lives in such a way that you're not living your life to the fullest anymore because of it. It's so important to get back out there. Yes, it's important to process, but you don't necessarily have to process for months and months. You have to process, you have to see your part, you have to see their part, you have to feel your feelings and get out there. So open yourself up to love again. There's a lot of lessons. I know people don't like to hear this, but the more intense the heartbreak, the more lessons there are. And by lessons, I really mean like meanings. Like you can make this mean like this is going to be the thing, the catalyst that makes me transform. This is going to be the catalyst that makes it so that I never repeat that pattern again. This is going to be the catalyst so that I really get my crap together because I haven't had my crap together. This is going to be the catalyst for my new career. This is going to be the catalyst for that, for me moving to a foreign country that I've always wanted to do. This is going to be the cat. I mean, it can really be a catalyst. And if it is for something that empowers you, then all of a sudden that breakup story means something totally different and lives inside of you as having a whole different meaning and story. And then when that happens, you immediately change your body, mind, and soul's relationship to that trauma. And when you change the relationship to the trauma, the trauma doesn't have a hold on you and your physicality as much. What you can start literally doing today is if you're in the acute stages, take a few walks, make sure you get outside, make sure you're feeding yourself and make sure you're hydrating and make sure you're talking to someone. So hydration, food, get outside, move your body a little bit, even if it's a walk and make sure you're talking to someone. If you are past the acute stage, make sure you are processing, you're further processing, assess whether or not in the five stages of grief, if maybe you're stuck in one particular phase and that you need, maybe you need help getting out of that phase and then seek out that help. Further on processing, if you're at the stage where you're blaming them, Start thinking about your responsibility. If you're stuck in just your responsibility, start to see what their responsibility was in it, their contribution, and see if you can look at it more objectively. And then some of you, you have to be like, okay, I'm telling a different story. I'm not going to rehash the same sequence of events in my mind to my best friends, to my therapist, to whoever. I'm going to change it. I'm going to change up the languaging. So these are things that you can literally start to do immediately. You can start to journal all your emotions, your feelings on the page every single morning 
so that they don't get stuck and you don't start then developing all these weird physical symptoms. And if you are feeling weird physical symptoms, don't panic. So much of it is psychosomatic. Maybe all of it. Or I'm going to, you know, you can start to join that gym and just build some community there and work out. These are things that you can start doing literally today. So today's episode, just to summarize, was heartbreak, really how to process and recover from a breakup, whether that is a breakup from someone you've been with for one month or 20 years. And there's so much in this episode. This is a really long episode. So take from it what feels like what you need intuitively to take from it right now. And you might listen to this in a month from now and be like, okay, I'm ready to, I'm hearing something else. But take from it what really resonates most with you and run with it. That's what I would have to say about that. And please make sure to rate and review and subscribe. But most importantly, really most importantly, is that if you have a friend or someone you know who is suffering right now, who's really in pain over a loss, send them this episode. Because if there's one thing I know, I really understand heartbreak, and I think that this will really help. So pass it along. And thank you for listening. Jillian on Love is a Q Code production, executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, produced by Ryan Countshouse, edited in music by Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.